0: Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Today's guest is Matt Carpenter. Matt's the CEO of both Silvercar and Dealerware. Matt, say hello and introduce yourself if you would. Hello, John. Hello, and hello to the audience. I'm
1: Matt Carpenter, the Matt Carpenter referenced by John in his intro. I do lead two different businesses, Silvercar and Dealerware, under a common corporate structure. We're an Audi-backed organization, and we're focused on evolving uh, retailers in the automotive industry to the brave new world of electrified fleets and shared mobility and digital experiences. And we're also scaling a mobility product branded for Audi, in the market today as Silvercar by Audi. So Silvercar by Audi is B2C, our dealerware enterprise software business is B2B, and we service retail consumers with our Silvercar mobility products and B2B enterprise customers with our dealerware software product. Wow. So we're a little bit B2B, we're a little bit C2C, and I'm a native son of Detroit and have been in automotive for over 20 years. so. I'm here for all of the industry change, and uh, we are finding our way to scale in the company and in the team
0: that I support. Today. No, that's great. That's great. So um, how is that industry? Because it's historically been union driven, whatnot. And you don't think of auto industry companies, the big, big three, perhaps, or the big four, whatever you want to call them. You don't think of them as scaling. You think of them as stable or they incrementally grow. How are you scaling? How do you measure that or track it?
1: Yeah, so first on the industry level, um, I know the auto industry isn't a new industry, so it doesn't feel like a growth industry. But the reality of automotive is that it is at scale and it already moves countries and regions and worlds in the tens of millions of new vehicle sales order of magnitude today and servicing hundreds of millions of cars and customers on the road worldwide today. So the auto industry may get a bad rap at times in regards to innovation, and its ability to scale, because it's been operating at scale already for decades, long before the birth of a lot of the tech giants that we know and reference today in scale conversations. So there is still a lot of change to be had. And there are some legacy processes at retail and even legacy processes at the manufacturing level that are underway that will largely change the industry and the way that we move with the products of the industry. So there are some trends that are creating new market opportunities around the software enabled vehicle and connected car technology. The electrification of fleets worldwide is obviously a growth subsegment of automotive that Tesla and sure. others that are younger and more startup Feeling have initiated um, the world of shared mobility is my personal passion and certainly a growth subsegment of the broader transportation and automotive markets. So we are trying right. to get legacy players at scale in the new stuff, right? So that's where our focus is. That's where I'll start.
0: You bring up Tesla's. The, obviously, the the name everyone knows, but there's Rivian and there's Lucid and. Is there, is there a possibility uh, or how possible is it to start a company like Rivian and get to scale? Do they ha- Can they ever capture enough market share to, to do that? It seems like a massive amount of um, capital expenditure for a niche product.
1: Yes. Yeah, so automotive is not an easy industry to break into, right? It's nearly a century and a half old. The costs of barrier are extreme. Access to capital in some markets is easier than others. Today is probably not the easiest time in the market to raise capital, especially in the billions. And the reality of it all is it's very difficult to develop a vehicle platform. It's very difficult to set up a manufacturing base and a supplier ecosystem and a sales and marketing strategy that includes building a new brand and a distribution network, whether you're direct to consumer or to the consumer through a franchise model like traditional automotive. So the industry is difficult to break into, but if you have great enough innovation and you have a path, a product led path to value for the consumer, I think what some of the younger companies in the space like Tesla have demonstrated is if you are building what the market wants, and you have a compelling go to market strategy that will compel investors to yes to give you the capital to get over the barriers of entry, there can be a industry and arguably world shifting opportunity in front of you. And I don't think there is a better example, at least within automotive than the Tesla example. Yeah,
0: Tesla's obviously they're 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 doing it. If you go to dealerware and silver car car, obviously it's a there are opportunities, there are niches, there are places to exploit. How do you put boundaries on, on what you pursue in terms of, you know, you're chasing higher growth and, and new markets. How do you, how do you focus or uh, vet or filter out stuff you shouldn't be doing from things you should, you should go after with reckless abandon?
1: Yeah. So for, for us in steering our work and, and my personal prioritization, I ask myself and I ask the team some basic questions to start, and we use it to vet the business cases and market opportunities of new ideas, and we use it as a matter of ritual to continue ongoing prioritization exercises internally. But first and foremost, you start with the problem. What's the problem in the market? And I'll give you an example, which largely we're addressing with both businesses, silver curry and dealer, respectively. I personally think, and we collectively over time have come to the conclusion that vehicle ownership as the dominant and arguably single solution for vehicle enabled transportation is incomplete for market expectations. And technology is enabling access to vehicles in daily, weekly, monthly increments in a way, frankly, that I believe personally either augments or replaces traditional vehicle ownership.
0: So when you say incomplete, what do you mean by incomplete? Like the experience is incomplete?
1: There are 325 million vehicles, roughly, registered to less than 250 licensed drivers in America. Cars have never been more expensive and they're parked 96% of the day on average. Yeah. So it's an asset utilization perspective when I apply that kind of logic. But what it comes down to from my simple perspective is households have too many cars. Some households have three and can go with two. Some have two and can go with one. And in the cities where there is at scale shared mobility solutions and public transportation, maybe you can go about your life and your career without actually owning a vehicle. It improves the personal economics. It certainly takes emissions out of the air. It allows us to repurpose a lot of space that we use today for roadways and parking structures. And frankly, I think it's just a better solution in in the future if the technology can bring it to life. And that solution I'm talking about is you can still own a car, but you have the option to own the second car. And if the answer for your household or your individual decision is no, I don't need the second car. We are scaling an alternative that allows you to basically summon a vehicle on demand in any daily, weekly, monthly increment versus owning the car and committing to the car transactionally for seven years in the ownership cycle or three years in the leasing cycle. So, you know, the parallel that I like to um, joke about with my friends is. We just want to allow people to pay by the drink.
0: How do you um, get past the idea of I like my own crap? I I like when I get in my car, I want my sunglasses and I want my, um, you know, my junk, my workout stuff in the back and my um, picnic blanket that I keep just in case. Is that is that just a um, psychological barrier or is that is that real?
1: You can see the trend. So we measure it by share and distribution of passenger miles traveled so I'll, I'll give you okay. a couple of pieces of data for reference in 2015 approximately 2% of US vehicle miles traveled passenger miles traveled were traveled in a vehicle that was part of a shared fleet okay that number is now six seven percent so the, the trend is real and Lyft and Uber and what they've brought to the market digital access in a matter of minutes to Rides is one new market development that is allowing consumers to rethink the way that they move in their routine. I think what also accelerates the trend is the fact that so many of us are, are working like this now. We're, we're not, John, you and I in the same room. We're not even in the same city or state. We're working remote, right? And, and this is just one application of that, but there are many jobs out there that no longer require the daily commute Meanwhile in the traditional vehicle ownership and leasing models you have to commit to the asset for months and years at a time yeah. but in the future if per se you're only going into your office one or two days a week it starts to make a lot of economic sense for the consumer maybe just to secure a vehicle for those two days out of 7 and you know maybe rethink the role of vehicle ownership in their household budget it makes- and repurpose that into paying by the dream.
0: It, it makes a lot. Of right,
1: so right. get back to your your question on, you know, where do you draw the lines? Like first, the problem needs to be big and it needs to be real. And I don't need to go much further to validate those two questions than cars are really expensive, they depreciate and they're sitting 96% of the time.
0: And they pollute. yeah. So
1: is, and they pollute, yeah. which we don't like for the next generation or the generations beyond. Sure. So, the, the second question is Do we have a right to win in developing and delivering the solution? Right? And that requires a lot of self reflection. Mm-hmm. Do you have the talent? Do you have the capital? Do you have an early go to market strategy that you can test, refine, and execute? Do you have a product development roadmap that brings the market the solution that it needs to a real problem to solve? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more calculus than algebra for sure, for sure. But it really starts with the simple questions. What's the problem? Is it big enough? Is it worth solving? And do we have a right to solve it? Right.
0: right. So you've been on this, this journey for a while. And obviously you're, you're, I would imagine you're either growing successfully or you die in, in your industry. There's no, there's no, uh, you can't incrementally, um, scoot along I'm curious if there's um if there was an inflection point or a specific episode perhaps that shifted you from this is our idea this is our hypothesis to oh we're a real player now and we're growing like we're growing like gangbusters was it was there a specific event or episode or uh, talk to me about that you, the traditional what people would call the hockey stick so two big moments
1: and I'll pick one for both of our businesses. And, you know, largely, I've, I've opted in to this path, because, you know, my last job was a pretty good job. I I was the CFO of North America for Audi. And I love the job. I love the brand. I love the organization. And it would have been easy and safe for me to stay on a more traditional automotive manufacturer, corporate executive path and do the next thing. And then the next thing. And that was a pretty good job to begin with. So Who's to say I couldn't have just stayed in that chair and not done the next mm-hmm. thing? But what compelled me to this path that I'm on now and what's been validated in many moments in our histories, I'll pick a couple, are the following. For the silver car business, we started as a venture-backed organization. Audi became investors. I became partner to the company and to the team. And somewhere along the way, we decided together that the silver car airport car rental business and fleet was uniquely going to be comprised of just Audi vehicles for a lot of different reasons. We don't have to get in right now, but I never viewed it as just a thesis around a better form of airport car rental. I viewed it as a better form of access to vehicles with modern technology.
0: Because you could plug plug in any brand.
1: Plug in any vehicle, any brand, any fleet structure, any location. It was really just Fascinating in the sense of thinking about it as digital access to vehicles, right? Mobile device or web enabled, no lines, no shuttles, no awkward upsell process around an insurance product or a TomTom, just an in-app experience that allows you to reserve a vehicle and know that it was going to be a dependable vehicle and a good one, an Audi, at any point in time, and they would tell you how to get it. Car rental net promoter score as an industry is notoriously filled with um, low marks and friction, right? Because of a lot of the, the problem spaces that the silver car product originally sought to take on, you don't know what kind of car you're going to get. You don't know the logistic structure of navigating operations and lines and queues to get to that vehicle. Someone, a human being, that is somewhere in the journey is going to sell you something you either don't need, don't want, or don't understand. And more often than not, you're going to lose a lot of time that you would have preferred to have to repurpose, to do more useful and productive things. It is difficult to manage a fleet. It is difficult to stand up a car rental customer experience. So this is not necessarily an indictment to all of the great companies and businesses that have been built around, fleet management and car rental, but the reality is it's such a complicated space. It leaves a lot for the consumer to be desired. Yeah. And if you look at that industry and even the leading players in that industry and their net promoter scores, you know, hovering between zero and 60, um, zero and 30 actually, if, if you're looking at the, the volume players, the fact that the silver car product for its first several years of inception was always hovering around 80 to 90, trapped inside of an airport car rental operational model, that for me was a compelling reason that we were on the right track. If we can stand up a product in one of the most complicated spaces and markets logistically and deliver a product that inspires our users, our daily users, to heightened levels of loyalty and three to four X, the net promoter scores. I think we're doing something that we need to scale further. Yeah. So that was a big moment for me personally in the silver car business. And I also mentioned in my intro. We operate under a common corporate structure, silver car Inc, the silver car B2C car rental product, which is all Audi and the dealerware B2B fleet management software business, both run under that corporate structure, silver car Inc. But dealerware is set up to service the whole industry, all of our OEM partners and all of their franchise dealers around the problem space at dealership fleet management and dealership car rental programs. But to get back to the point, we built this business dealerware under a unique and single shareholder structure under Audi, right? It is not atypical for a product, a business, an organization to be built like we built dealerware under a single industry player structure and a single shareholder structure with the thesis that we can take that product, that business into the rest of the industry and frankly, quote unquote, sell it to the competitive rivals of our parent. Competitive juices are a thing, particularly in automotive. And the fact that the early team of dealerware was successful in scaling the dealerware product beyond Audi was a very important and inspiring, critical point of validation, validation of product market fit, validation of our strategic thesis that you can use modern technology and a software platform to bring value to car dealers who can bring value to their customers. and Maybe in the future, we can all work together to do a lot more shared mobility things. But the fact that we got a lot of Audi's competitive OEMs to either approve or subsidize or mandate the DealerWare software platform for their franchise dealers gave me what I needed to have the energy to go and get the capital yeah. to invest into the DealerWare business and vision and scale that vision to the rest of the industry. No. So here we are today with DealerWare as a, as a quick just present day point of validation. What started as a single fleet management solution at one Audi dealership in San Jose, California now services nearly 2000 franchise dealers across the U S and Canada representing 28 different OEM brands.
0: And we're just getting started. Yeah, no, I get it. This is, this is what I call scale. That's great. Um, So I hear a lot of um, you see a lot in media especially in, um, autobiographies and whatnot. It, uh, founders who tell their story and the story they tell makes it sound like, yeah, like a, like a Harvard business school business plan. We just, we just went on this prescribed growth year after year after year. We went public after four years and life's good. I'm a billionaire. I've never found a real company that works that way. Um, What I'm more interested in, because it's more applicable, I'm guessing that there have been some either hard earned lessons or colossal mistakes or pitfalls, because there's no way you can make every decision perfectly. But I'm curious on your growth uh, trajectory and your growth journey, what's what's the lesson that you paid the biggest tuition for? What did you learn and what was the tuition?
1: Uh, So my learning as a, uh, admittedly, first time CEO the last three years, is that you can't take anything for granted. And I would like to think that um, success in business and scale and ringing the bell in the public markets on Wall Street is a a straight linear line and you just got to execute. The reality is you can't take market conditions for granted. Mm You can't take present day product market fit for granted. You can't take a pandemic for granted. It's going to be product market fit. (laughs) You can't um, take for granted that the world will always be as we see it today. It changes on extreme levels like the pandemic. You can't take customers for granted. You can't take employees for granted. Like circumstances and variables change every single day so quickly. It's just a very messy journey. Right. And sometimes you have, market tailwinds. Sometimes you have market headwinds. Sometimes it feels like growth and scale are coming easier. Sometimes you're doing all the right things and it's just not the right time. And you're losing ground. It's more difficult. So, so my, my biggest lesson learned is you got to earn it every single day. You have to earn the trust of the market. You have to earn the business of customers and you have to earn the loyalty and the energy of your employees every single day. Hmm. And nothing tested any of us as leaders, more greatly and profoundly than COVID nineteen, which we had to start managing in the spring of twenty twenty, and and that was you know a cleansing moment mentally for me because it did give me the courage that nobody's got a playbook for this right. right no one so had any idea what's real. All are reset to ground zero. Yeah. That's right. So there's not something that I'm missing. I didn't miss the memo or the bulletin or the playbook that I just need to run and perfect execution. All of the conditions and all of the markets for all of the organizations and businesses and products have changed. So why don't we just go and work harder and work smarter than everybody else in our space and win this market?
0: Mm -hmm. That's great, that's great. I'm curious, um, you know, you and I've talked in the past, do you have specific personal philosophies or limitations or mandates that you require of yourself or of your team or of your whole organization. You might even require it of customers.
1: Do you have those? Yeah, I have a few. One comes to mind and admittedly, you may tell from the accent, at least it comes and goes, but I am a native Midwesterner from Dearborn, Michigan. And we like to think of ourselves in the Midwest as optimistic, internally optimistic. I have my moments in which I'm not, but for the most part, I'd like to think as myself, as an optimist. And, um, my personal philosophy and the team feels this, and hopefully our customers feel this is uh, quote unquote, uh, start with yes. Start with yes is a personal philosophy of mine that I live by and communicate often with the team regarding the way that we should engage internally and externally with ourselves as a company, with our investors, with our customers. Notice I didn't say end with yes. I said start with yes. And I always say start with yes. Assume positive intent. Mm -hmm. Assume a lot of talent around you and knowledge around proposals. Assume that people are bringing to the table really interesting opportunities that could lead to really cool outcomes for all of us to share. Whether that's a product idea or a strategic idea related to our go-to-market strategy, an investment idea or scenario, a customer request, or how we engage with one another as team members within the organization. I personally find that a lot of good ideas never find the market because they never survive the internal filters and the full-time devil's advocacy that I believe can hold back teams and organizations. Mm -hmm. So from one perspective, I like to play the volume game. Like, let's get all the ideas on the table and let's have an efficient process and a data-rich process to go through them quickly. Yeah. But assume that positive intent. Assume that you're surrounded by smart and talented and motivated people. Assume that our customers aren't crazy and aren't always asking for unreasonable things. Or trying to
0: and trying start pulling yes, over on you. Yeah.
1: Right. And and let let our collective experience. Trust in leadership, trust in the process, and all of the data that we need to surround ourselves by, let that decide whether or not we do things, but don't defeat a really good and potentially game-changing idea before it's even born.
0: It's, it's interesting. Um, it was my wife's birthday last night, so we went out for a, ni- a nice dinner with uh, the Bay Area. We're blessed. They have their six Michelin, three Michelin star restaurants, and we got into one of them. And I had three specific requests of them, which was not their protocol. And everyone, they, uh, their answer was essentially, I don't see why not. They were not unreasonable requests. They were just, they have an unbelievable presentation and their process, They uh, eight tables only. So it's super high service, high touch. And what I appreciated, and you, you mentioned, that they recognized I wasn't trying to It's stupid expensive for a Michelin three-star restaurant. It includes everything. So it wasn't like I was trying to get free stuff. It was more like, this is my wife's birthday. If we could do it this way, would you be okay with that? And they said, that was it. I I don't see why not. (laughs) No, they didn't have to go to a committee. They didn't have to get, they just took agency and said, yeah, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we make this, um an unforgettable experience for these people because they have a request that's outside of our normal way of doing business. And they obviously know what they're doing. They're Michelin three star. You can't just, you can't buy that designation. You got to earn it. They do everything most days. Right. And, uh, it, I, and I take it. So that's, that's kind of what you guys are, are espousing with. Um, cause I can imagine you must get all kinds of crazy customer requests for, semi-customization or customization of, of your service?
1: Yeah, we do. Right. Which is why we can't frankly say yes to everything and end with yes all the time. Right. Right. And you know, before I get to methods on this, I just want to make sure I don't miss the important point. It's also a much better way to go through life, right? Like if, if you're surrounding yourselves by processes and people, that do play the roles of either you know human or protocol-driven devil's advocates, uh, yeah, Gate, it, it does <laughs> right. It's not very inviting. Yeah, it's not very well. Right. It doesn't inspire high-energy environments. It doesn't inspire. It doesn't inspire collaboration across department lines, and it just kind of drags out the day and feels more like work. It's- when you hear no more than you hear. Yes. Interesting. Right.
0: In school. It seems like the perfect example of that. There's, there's, there's rules from the first day and you think a five-year-old doesn't live in rules. They live in possibility and wonderment. And it doesn't take that long to kind of kill that spirit with the, the machine that is the school system You go. Um, yeah. 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 No, the
1: the kid's example, I love John all the time because I, um, I had a really good experience um, seeing it firsthand for myself in a very uncomfortable and unfamiliar environment. In, in 2016, I lived in Germany for about half the year, okay. You know, 35 years old at the time, trying to pick up the language for the first time. Right. And, you know, here I am trying to prepare to become and uh, be announced as the first U.S. native chief financial officer in the Audi group right. trying to pick up the language so I can be effective globally and internally and and really struggling. It's not a, because it's not a language you pick adult, up. Def- <laughs> German's hard. And as we age, our minds get more stubborn and we have more safeguards and defense mechanisms and fear of not getting it absolutely right. right. Meanwhile, in that environment i'm surrounded by kids that speak four or five different languages they go back and forth with no accents i mean almost like they're trying to further intimidate me but it's because they're willing to try so freely because we haven't trained them yet to be cynical and try to be perfect with everything that we do so start with yes is is my personal philosophy getting back to the practical application of it Um, you can't do everything. You shouldn't do everything. There's not enough time, money and resources to do everything. And we're not good at everything. So you need to have some structure and some discipline around how going through large quantities of ideas and opportunities and prioritizing Hmm. and maybe saying no for now to more things than you don't, but still inviting, doing it in a way that invites that innovation and imagination, which I think is super important particularly at an early stage organization like ours that is trying to do something that could potentially shift one of the largest legacy industries that humanity has ever stood up. Sure,
0: out. sure. Wow, that's fabulous. Um, what questions should I have asked you about scaling that I didn't? It's my favorite question, actually.
1: Uh, well, you know, the interview not over, so you still have time. Oh, no, know. no, that's
0: why, I'm, that's why I'm asking you because this is, uh, the guests often know. Um, Cause I'll miss stuff. Shocking as that may seem. I, yeah. Who knew?
1: Uh, I, I would say asking about failures can be uncomfortable. Now you and I know each oh, other, yeah. so it's okay. Yeah. Um, but um, I think actually also in the context of interviews with candidates to join the team, asking for examples and context around success, that is easy and natural. And it feels good because you're talking about things that ended up going really well. Yeah. But, um, you know, open exchange around where we fail, makes us feel uncomfortable as humans. Yeah. it does. And uh, I always like to ask about failures. And, you know, the self reflection, and what led up to it, and what happened most importantly, after um, so yeah, I would I would grill me a little bit on how many times I fell on my face yes. before you know we stood up the organization that we have today. Yeah,
0: well, you, you, it's it's interesting because you you answered it in thematic that uh, like here's how it, here's how the process works. I was curious, you know, your mistakes and my mistakes. Um, I I started nine companies, seven of them failed. That's a in my book, that's a dismal record. And if you go to, uh, but people tell me that i'm in silicon valley they say well venture capitalists only do one in ten you did two and nine you did great and i was like you know what you know the seven i talk i think about the seven that i that i didn't get it right and it was usually something afterwards i said how could i have missed that how could i have missed that we had just finished nine years of economic growth and we were about ready to fall off a cliff and i launched three weeks before you know the, the start of a colossal recession because I don't think that way. I think in terms of possibilities, and that's just as dangerous as somebody who's overly guarded. Oh, well. Uh, (laughs) So the tuition was writing a gigantic check for, you know, because we launched everything. And (laughs) I did that several times. Is that terrible? No. Um, Is it a good fit for me to launch things? Yeah, I'm a pretty good, I'm pretty good at it, but I'm probably not the one to... um, I'm I'm a terrible COO and it took me a while to figure that out because at the beginning you don't have a COO. You are the default COO. Oh yeah. We needed somebody to regulate my optimism. Hmm. Yeah. That's a hard, and most people say, no, we love optimism. You know, it can kill you too. <laughs> optimism and i you know, we're, we're heading into a bear market in the, in wall street. Oh yeah. Optimism probably isn't the right. It's probably not the right mode right now. Uh, approach with caution, maybe. So, uh, but I'm curious, um, I'm sure you've got specific examples of, yeah, I, I ended up with a two by four between the eyes for that one and it was my own doing or I, I, sh- I could have done better or I missed it or, um, you, do you have examples of that? I, I, I find those, the audience relates to those really well because people say, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and I agree with you, it's not a mistake if you then learn from it and get better. It certainly makes the tuition worth paying.
1: Yeah, I, I used to get stuck earlier in my career, and even earlier in my tenure in this role of, of trying to orchestrate everything perfectly around employee communications. Like too right, like, like we too polished have to,
0: communications or too yeah, scripted.
1: Yeah, like yeah, you know, I, I think you know, being optimistic inspires trust and energy and confidence. And frankly, if, if you have an organization that you believe in, if you have a vision that you share and believe in, you should be optimistic and confident. Yeah. And I I think I took it to the extreme earlier in my career and earlier in my tenure in this, in this um, role as CEO. And I don't think I spoke openly enough about the things that I didn't know and about the things that we weren't doing, right? So the the trap of any leader, in my opinion, and, and I've experienced this firsthand, but I've also observed it from leaders that I looked up to and worked with in the past. The trap is always you paint a rosy picture that's too optimistic without the balance of some of the realities that frankly, the team needs to know about. And you position them to maybe not act with the same level of urgency on the things that aren't working so well with the amount of resources they need to turn around and be better and then you get disappointed that the results don't come or the right that the market or the world enough. yeah
0: doesn't work the way your optimistic proposal yeah. right <laughs>
1: Well, and then when it gets worse, is like you you have this thin veil of contempt over it, right? And it's like, you're kind of mad that the team isn't figuring it out, but you're not telling them what the problem is, right? So like today in this role, especially when you go from big company, well-established business and brand yeah. with world-class products down to our stage of company, where you're still trying to find your way in the market and in our category, largely create something new, like I need to be more forthcoming internally and with customers that, yeah, it's not perfect right now, right? right? Like we have gaps in our product. We have um, undercovered sub-segments in our addressable market. We're not winning as fast as we would all like or our investment and cost profile suggest. And we got to work on that and we need to chip away. So celebrating the successes is important. I think that is a very powerful cultural um, matter of internal ceremony, but you got to talk about openly with the team what's not going well so they can do something about it and they don't misunderstand or misread your takes your public takes and not act fast enough on the most important things
0: that makes sense yep yep otherwise you're just you're not telling them telling them really there's a bear in that cave you say we're gonna have a great time caving you go oh oh it would have been nice to know in advance there was a big bear in there that would have helped that yeah yeah, it's still going to be a good day, but it would have been a better day if we knew there was a bear in there. Yeah.
1: yeah so nowadays, my my presentations may not be as polished and TEDx ready as maybe they used to be earlier in my career. Good, But um, <laughs> as you can imagine, um, I speak more openly with higher levels of emotion and energy, right. far fewer slides and very little. Rehearsal. Yeah,
0: that's good. Yeah, they they get they get real the real you. That's good. That's good. Um we like to end every call with uh, the same. It's a fun question. But if if we had gone to your junior high school, seventh or eighth grade and said, oh, yeah, there's that carpenter kid. Huh. What kind of a bet would you place on this guy that he'd be running a company? 25 years later or whatever it is, um, who are you in junior high that we should have seen it and said, yeah, of course, of course, that makes perfect sense, because everybody's that, the reason I picked that everybody's clunky and. You know, everybody's got pimples or braces or both or uh, who are you in junior high that we should have known?
1: Yeah. Uh, actually I think my classmates got it right. So we we did the was it the mock election? Oh yeah, the mock is election. that what it's called? Right yeah. when yeah. So you asked the questions. Um and, and I think we did one around sixth, seventh grade, so junior high zone. And Part of it was mapping all of our classmates to future professions, like who's going to oh, be president, cool. who's going to be a professional athlete. Yeah. And in the yearbook, under my name was used car salesman. I love, <laughs> I
0: love- <laughs>
1: right? So, I, I you know I, I think I was uh, chatty and a bit of a hustler, and you know certainly an extrovert then and now. I would say that. That aged pretty well and stuck with me. Do you have the
0: double knit jacket? Um, I probably you might have a have rock that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I probably fulfilled some stereotypes. <laughs> but it, I've always been extroverted. And I've always liked to um, persuade, right? And whether that was trying to convince my friends to go along with me way back then right. in sixth, seventh grade to do something, maybe that was on yeah, the edge. Might not, might not bad, have been maybe the maybe brightest the thing, yeah. Or today to compel car dealers today to be tomorrow's shared mobility centers and to compel a team to build what it takes technology-wise and product-wise to leverage the nearly 20,000 franchise dealers in the U.S. and Canada and their hundreds of thousands of cars to come together on a platform and be digitally presented to the market in a way that allows them to maybe not own that second or third car. And get around on demand. Yeah. Um, I've always tried to compel groups to do things I really believe. Yeah. In. Um, yeah. Sometimes misguided in sixth, seventh grade, but today well, I it's think good practice
0: in sixth or seventh grade because you can only get in so much trouble. You go, yeah, yeah. I can, I can get grounded, or yeah, I can get scolded or reined in, but yeah, pretty harmless in sixth and seventh. it's a good experimentation place. So, yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah, so that's how my classmates called it. Um, If if I was going to write the autobiographical version of that, John, I I would say back then uh, I was big into sports. I was always a member of the seasonal team. So football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball or track in the spring. spring. And I always took the identity of the team, right? So in, in basketball season, I was a basketball player, part of the team. And, you know, that's how I am today, right? Like at home, I'm part of a team with my wife, Lindsay, and my two boys, Andy and Henry. At the office, I'm part of a team. I'd like to be in the engineering mindset, on the engineering team when I'm in an engineering meeting, and then, you know, an hour later, you got to walk into a sales and marketing um, team meeting, and you have to take on that jersey and that identity. So I like to shape with the team. I identify with teams. I'm trying to build, of course, with um, the rest of the organization, that team mentality, because I think teams win and it's fun and more fun. it's more fulfilling to win, way more than fun. to win as an individual. Yeah,
0: that's great. That's great. Well, Matt, thanks for your uh, generosity today and your wisdom and insight. I say it all the time. There's no way to figure out scaling or high growth from anyone but entrepreneurs who are actually doing it. There's, it's not a textbook. It's not a university course, because like you say... Uh, The world doesn't work that way, (laughs) so it's uh, yeah,
1: it's far messier.
0: It's far messier and yeah, unpredictable and probably more fun because of it. So, uh, so thank you for being here today. Um, As always, we uh, we wish our listeners at Genius at Scale uh, all the best, and we'll see you on our our next episode.
1: Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me, and hopefully, one of these days we can do this in person.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com scale. All the best.